Hello and welcome to Talking You Retina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We'll also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. Speaking of which, if you're thinking of applying for the EBOU Retina exam, it's time to take action as there are only a few weeks left until the application date closes. March 14th is the deadline for applications, but remember, you need to provide supporting materials, photo, CV, reference letter and other information. All of those details are on the Retina website. But if you're like me, don't leave everything to the last minute. Don't start your application on March 14th. Give yourself time. Our last podcast, by the way, explains everything you need to know. You can apply at uretina.org. And a note that the Uretina Tumor section will host another Uretina Case Club on Wednesday, 8th of February. So if you're listening to this podcast before then, this will focus on ocular oncology. Hosted by Jens Falk Kilgard, we'll see four cases presented by younger colleagues and discussed by some of the leading names in ocular oncology. That's Wednesday, 8th of February, 8 p.m. Central or 7 p.m. GMT. You can register now on the Uretina website. All right, time for our discussion, looking at what's happened since the introduction of the very first gene therapy into the market five years ago. Our chat is chaired by Mark Panisi, who joins us for the first time in the podcast. Mark is at KCI Institute and Oregon Health and Science University. He's joined by both chairs of the IRD and Pediatric Retina Subspecialty Group at Uretina, Isabel Audo from the Institut de la Vision and L'Hôpital Cannes 20 Paris, and Bart Leroy from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and Ghent University. Mark, you're very welcome uh, to the podcast. How's your week been? Oh, it's been really wonderful here. A little cold in Portland, Oregon, but uh, quite, uh, quite sunny for a change. Well, I know this is going to be a very interesting discussion and you'll be exploring whether or not these therapies have reached the top of the hype curve. There's uh, There's been some good chat about it before we started recording. So over to you, Mark. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, it, it's a real pleasure uh, to be here today. I'm, I'm very excited to be joined by my colleagues and, and dear friends, uh, Isabel Adu and Bart Leroy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about where gene therapy has gone in the last five years. And so when Beretagene Naparvavec was first approved uh, almost five years ago, it was the, the first successful gene therapy in the retina for a rare inherited retinal disease. And I think since that time, we've learned quite a lot. And so I thought it would be a great idea to uh, sit down and talk about that. So. Bart and Isabel, I thought first we could each maybe start off by talking a little bit about our experience with Veredigine Naparvavec for RP65 mutations. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what kind of results you've seen uh, with patients that have been treated and how has having an approved gene therapy changed your practice? Isabel, would you like to go first? Okay. So when Voritidin uh, Neparvovec came into our clinic, of course, it was a, a game changer uh, from telling the patient that there was nothing that we can do for them. Uh, we could invite some of them to do something, although it's uh, still a small proportion of, of our patient that can benefit from that. So it was um, quite an organization first to establish the gene therapy within our uh, you know, healthcare pipeline from the pharmacy to our surgeon and so on. So there was a bit of planning. And then uh, um, regarding uh, the results that uh, we can uh, see now, uh, definitely from the first patient on, 
the most striking thing that the patients were reporting was night uh, vision improvement. Uh, from the first two girls that we treated that were wearing lamp on their fronts, you know, after uh, um, in, even in between both eyes being injected, they dropped their lamps. They were really more outgoing and the uh, patients as well as the teachers really reported that the girls were really interacting more with their mates and it changed really in the way this, they had social interaction and so on. And then, you know, uh, it's back to normal. You know, these little girls, they went back to school. They were better to socialize and everything. Uh, probably in, in our, on our adult patient that we've treated, the change was probably less obvious. The report was less um, a game changer, like, like I said, but that's what we can report from now. Great. Bart, you were involved in some of the actual early studies for, for validation. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that, but then also talk about just how things have changed with the post-approval. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thank you also for, for having me on the discussion. It's great to see two dear friends and colleagues. So I, I was lucky as a, an ophthalmic geneticist, genetic ophthalmologist, whatever you want to call it, to be part of the initial team that did the studies with Gene uh, Bennett and Al McGuire and um, Kathy High, three absolutely three leaders in the field. Obviously, those were the early days. It was exciting. Uh, it was incredibly interesting to see a product move from preclinical studies into clinical studies, and then eventually assisting the process both at FDA for. Um, the then Spark company, uh, Spark Therapeutics, that uh, has brought the product to market in the US, and then helping EMA, European Medicines Agency, to look at data uh, for the approval in Europe. So I was wearing two different hats in those two different um, uh, procedures. I've learned an, an awful lot. I've obviously learned a lot from seeing the patients go better. Uh, two of the three initial children treated in the phase one study were children from Ghent. And actually, uh, funnily enough, I saw the second of the two uh, now young men who were boys at the time that they were treated today. So that's, uh, I think, 13, 14 years after the initial treatment. And he's still going fairly strong, um, the other boy as well. Uh, there is a difference in um, function as compared to initially, but the loss of function is pretty reasonable and is mostly a loss of the function of the area that wasn't treated. I think the uh, 13 patients that we have been treating up to now in Ghent, at Ghent University Hospital in Ghent, Belgium, have done classically what we have seen both in the studies and in the follow-on studies that have been performed since, uh, the PERCEIVE study is a study that is a phase four study in Europe, uh, led by Novartis, who has the rights in all the markets ex-US. And they, they perform, and Isabelle is part of that as well, uh, a large phase four study where post-marketing, we look at all the data. And the data of the PERCEIVE study generally confirm what was seen in the initial studies. Now, our personal experience, and I don't want to be too long, the children that we treat uh, seriously 
up the ante in retinal sensitivity. And so uh, much more than just the best corrected visual acuity in some of them, certainly not in all of the patients and certainly not in the adult patients, much more than that, you see them go up in light sensitivity. And it's quite amazing. I mean, our first patient who wasn't a child, she was a 40-year-old lady. She said to me afterwards, but I can now see when I prepare the um, sandwiches for my my son in the morning I can now see what I'm doing previously she was just doing this by touch only we have treated and that's maybe an interesting thing we have treated uh, older people uh, who have the end of the shelf life if I can say it, that uh, derogatory of the retinal function uh, we wanted to give those people a chance and some of them have actually done pretty well one patient has seen some improvement that was objectively um, measurable in light sensitivity, but she lost it six months after that one first eye was treated. We chose for those people who were treated very late in life, I'm talking 56 and 57, um, uh, to, to just treat one eye and to observe for six months. Because obviously this is a societal responsibility in contrast to the US, where the uh, situation in reimbursement is different and more fragmented. Uh, Isabel can talk about France, but France and Belgium are very much similar. They have a nationalized health service. And so uh, in Belgium, it is reimbursed. And obviously, that's a lot of money that we spend from us because those baskets of money are actually owned by the population of that country. And so patient, patients readily accept that. Thank you. We've, we've certainly had a very similar experience at our institution. We've treated around 23 patients at this point. And I agree the results in children are, are sometimes profound. In fact, I've seen improvements in, in visual acuity. Uh, interestingly, I've actually had a lot of patients report improvements in color vision, which is something that wasn't really expected, you know, since we really thought this was going to impact rod function. So that's been a little bit of a, a pleasant surprise. Additionally, a number of patients have had improvement in their visual fields. And one particular patient I, I remember was a 13-year-old male. And the mother had, had quit her job, essentially, because she had to take care of the boy because he couldn't really do a lot for himself. And after the therapy, his fields improved so much. You know, she told me uh, he can do things now. It used to be I have to pick up his backpack on the floor because he couldn't see it. Now he can find it. Now he can walk to school, whereas before he couldn't. And she was actually able to say, you know, I'm actually going back to work because I don't need to be there all the time. And so I thought it was a really great example of how not only the gene therapy can impact the patient, but also have a great benefit on the family as well, because many of these family members dedicate a lot of time to taking care of these patients. So I think, you know, another question, we know now that Spark Therapeutics has put out five-year data from the original trial showing durability up to five years. Bart, you had patients obviously who were treated longer ago. Maybe the two of you can, you know, talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of, of durability and changes over the long term. 
Isabel, you have you have the longest experience in Europe. Maybe you can start. Or... So yeah, our uh, oldest treated uh, girls uh, had now four year follow up, and um, on objective tests such as uh, FST uh, stimulus thresholds, um, the benefit that we had seen initially is maintained. We will probably um, discuss about the. Um, new um, uh, element of, of worrisome, these atrophic cases. So we've seen uh, with time some atrophy, mostly after one or two years of treatment. But the interesting thing is this, in none of the cases we've seen, the benefits, the functional benefit and the functional improvement has been hampered. So um, although we just have four years follow-up, and not as long as you, Bart, it seems that the, the initial benefit is still maintained uh, over over time. So of, of course we need to watch them longer on kids. The four years is nothing, but uh, I think so far things are quite uh, stable and encouraging for the future. I agree, Isabel, and I think from the data that we've uh, published now is it, it is obvious that four and five years are maintained. Retinal sensitivity certainly. I can elaborate. Um, beyond the fact that I haven't published this yet, about the two patients whom I've uh, seen participate in phase one, and both of them are actually doing fairly well. The one whom I saw actually today is, I think, 14 years, if I'm not mistaken, 14 years after treatment in the first eye, and uh, is still going strong. And the only thing that changed in his worse eye, which was then treated with the half dose, there was an, or I should say mid dose. You had a basic dose, a mid dose, and then a high dose. The latter being the eventual concentration of the product that was marketed as foretigine naparvovec. And his um, right eye, which was the worst eye, was treated with the mid dose. You can tell that the Goldman visual field is not as large as it used to be. His uh, best corrected visual acuity is not good, but it's certainly uh, stayed stable over time. That is the same in his left eye, where he was treated with what is now Veretigin Neparvovec. And it's quite spectacular also when you talk about atrophy, and we can talk about that. I think it's important because uh, that is uh, certainly something that has been getting some attention. The atrophy in the, at the level of the injection sites is seen, but is not very big. And there's very minor atrophy in the treatment area. The atrophy beyond the treatment area is obvious. And so I think that for our listeners, the three of us could do this. But now that I'm talking, the atrophy, I, I always try and divide in three things because otherwise people get it all mixed up. The injection site might be shearing off of cells that you shear off doing the injection. I'm not sure, could be local toxicity. Any, any uh, comment on that would be uh, valued. Uh, and then you've get the, you got the atrophy beyond the treatment area, which is just the IRD continuing its course in my uh, mind. And then what I think is more worrisome is those few cases, but they have been reported. It's clear that in all sets, there are some the atrophy in the treatment area and the one then immediately and I'm, I'm going to maybe open the discussion with throwing something on the plate of us all could this be because of titration the fact the dosage that we shove in 
is pretty similar for all patients, whereas not all patients have target cells in the same numbers. And so I, I wonder, but my big worry is about, well, big worries may be, may be too much, as Isabel was saying, the function generally uh, doesn't get affected too much. But the biggest worry for the atrophy that I have certainly is the area of treatment atrophy. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Bart. I, I do think you're onto something with regards to the titration. Certainly, you know, people have shown there's a, a correlation with the improvement on, on the FST and, and the atrophy. And we've, we've seen in a few patients where if you actually do visual fields, dark adapted two color visual fields, where you see the biggest improvement, sometimes almost even super normal improvement in sensitivity also seem to correlate where the areas of atrophy are. And so I think it might be something where you're almost burning the candle a little too bright. And perhaps that could easily be avoided with just decreasing the dose a bit. You know, I think we always think about the, the dose in terms of vector genomes, but really what we need to be thinking about is multiplicity of infection. How many viral vector particles per cell are uh, occurring? And that's a little harder to figure out because we don't have an exact count for every patient on how many cells are there. What about um, maybe, have you guys seen any inflammation following treatment and how have you dealt with that? So if I, if I may start on that, so we've treated so far 22 patients, uh, 44 eyes in our center. And so far we haven't seen any um, anterior chamber inflammation. And I'm always surprised because I, I'm expecting some uh, either cells in the, in the anterior chamber or in the vitreous, and we don't see uh, much of that. Uh, obviously, as per protocol, our patient are in their steroids around the surgery and, and one, one month after the surgery. The only thing that we've been seeing is in one kid, there was some sort of white dots at some point, which could look like, you know, peak punctuate um, inner choroiditis, which actually resolved quite quickly and, and resulted only on focal atrophy, uh, which were not um, in the center that was a bit off the center, but definitely in the, the treated area. That's the only thing we've been seeing um, in, in our patients. Do you, uh, Isa, can I ask you a question? Yeah. You're talking about those white dots. Um, were mm -hmm. they on OCT? Coincident yeah. with with uh, outer yeah. retinal inflammatory cells potentially. Yeah, so we we did uh, then scan on these white dots, and there was uh, they were uh, corresponding to hyper reflective materials, um, which was really really focal. And the one kid we had seen that was just on one eye, and he had two or three white dots like that. On this kit, we just, uh, what we decided is to continue the steroids and not to taper the steroids. That's the only thing. And then we tapered the steroids like a month later. And again, that was completely resolved and just an atrophy area, a, a, a punctuate atrophy on, on these white dots. Interesting, because I, I always think about the fact that in the phase one, phase one add-on, and then the phase three study, we spoke about retinal deposits and if i go back now to those papers and those studies that we did we were obviously much more naive than we are today 
I tend to think that this might have been accumulations of inflammatory cells in this, uh, the subretinal space. I'm not sure. We'll probably never know. But I think um, we didn't see any uh, issues because of them. As far as inflammation, I can be short. In Ghent, we've seen one person uh, whom we treated, a 37-year-old gentleman with a relatively good preserved uh, or well-preserved central retina. And our patient, a, a gentleman, had a second eye treated five weeks after the initial one. But in his second eye, he, he then developed serious inflammation. I asked a couple of colleagues, including, I think, uh, you guys. And what we did was treat with local steroids in very high doses, high dose of uh, steroids uh, uh, orally. And we couldn't get it under control. Uh, we then did a vitrectomy. We, we uh, did a culture. We never saw anything grow, um, whether there was bacterium or not we will never know but we didn't see anything grow but the vitrectomy actually cleared out the whole space our surgeon also took away an inflammatory ball of cells which sat in the fovea and the patient was actually talking about the blurriness of the central vision afterwards after the operation he said it's gone i'm so happy the gentleman is now very happy we controlled the inflammation after the second treatment but what we've done is instill in our program uh, a view that we shouldn't be treating beyond three or four weeks max because from four to five weeks six weeks that's when you get the peak of both cellular and humoral humoral um, immunological reactions and so whether that's a good idea or not we either treat a maximum third maybe fourth week or six months after so at our site we typically treat the two eyes within a, a week or two weeks. And, but I, I'm not so sure, you know, how much of a difference that that makes. Because if you think about the original phase one, two trials, a lot of those patients were treated even a year later. You know, by and large, we've not seen much inflammation with reditine nefarva vector. I, I, I think compared to a lot of other gene therapy vectors that we've used, this is probably one of the least inflammatory um, ones, but but that doesn't mean that inflammation can't occur. And I think that we all need to be very cognizant, you know, sort of of this new concept of, of gene therapy associated uveitis, um, mm. which we do see. And, and I think there's a risk, you know, with any, any vector that you're putting mm. underneath the retina or into the vitreous that uh, you might get inflammation. Mark, do you think that other subretinal injections were also more inflammatory than is ferritigine and parvovec? Yeah, that's that's been my my general experience. Um, just having been involved in a number of of studies, um, typically ferritigine, we see almost no inflammation. And and considering that the amount of steroids we're using is a little bit on the lighter side, you know, I do think that is a, a testament that this is probably a lower risk overall. Yeah. So, well, I, I just see. have one question, yeah. Mark. Mm -hmm. uh, some center in France are actually doing a septenon at the end of the surgery, and there mm -hmm. was a discussion around that. Is that within your practice? We have done that um, in in certain protocols. You mm -hmm. know, the the one thing I would say is it's not my um, first approach necessarily just because of the risk of the increase in pressure um, mm -hmm. 
that you can see. And, and so we have sometimes done a subtenons injection at the end, but then two or three weeks later, you're often dealing with the, the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in other programs, I mean, I have at least one patient who ended up needing a glaucoma procedure following a, a subtenons injection and they developed increased pressure uh, that really wasn't amenable to uh, medical treatment. So I, I think you have to be a little careful. And I think that, you know, steroids can work very well, but they come with their risk profile. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's been a lot of talk among all of us that should we be considering other steroid sparing agents, maybe to lower the dose of, of the steroids that are needed. But I don't think anyone has, you know, implemented that yet with our X-linked retinoschisis uh, gene therapy studies, which was a intravitreal injection, we did have three patients who developed a chronic uveitis and, and ultimately needed methotrexate because they were on steroids so long that they were starting to get uh, deleterious effects. And, and so we did have to employ a steroid sparing agent. So I think we have to be aware that, you know, most of these cases respond well to steroids, but there is also a possibility sometimes that you may get a, into a chronic uh, situation. And Mark, was this a uh, chronic uveitis that you were, you were able to finally treat with to a good end in the sense that you could stop treatment, you could, you could taper off treatment in the end? Or? Yeah, I mean, in, in some of the patients we were able to uh, taper off and, you know, one was somewhat lost to follow up because of COVID, but there was kind of a smoldering inflammation. Um, so it was a little bit of a mixed Mm -hmm. success, but I don't think you want to get in that situation. So I think that it's better to probably be aggressive upfront and try to prevent inflammation rather than chasing it uh, once it's occurred. Well, good. Let's maybe shift gears a little and, you know, talk about some of the gene therapies that are in trials and maybe each of you could tell me what you're excited about and what you think might be the next gene therapy to potentially get approved. So maybe so. I can I can start on that. You know, in in, in Europe and 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 uh, Bart is uh, actively uh, involved with that as well. That we're starting the RPGR gene replacement therapy at this point, uh, which I think. Um, to consider the number of patients and the severity of the disease. I think the severity of the disease, there's no uh, question about it on, on, on male patients. And it's definitely uh, uh, representing a, a large number of our severe uh, RP cases. So uh, um, on my side, I'm very excited that we're starting the phase three and, uh, and I'm really expecting some positive outcome for, for that. Um, we'll see. <laughs> so we are just starting that phase three and hopefully uh, there will be a positive outcome. I agree, and I think I still personally believe that there are, if you ask me, Bart, what do you think is going to be the future? There's three uh, pathways, I think. I still would say I believe in the power of antisense oligonucleotides. I, I still do believe that there's a place for them. They are going a, a little bit through a rough patch, but um, this is something we could discuss later on maybe. Um, as to how to get to outcomes that that help regulatory agencies to approve, but I think I think there's a place for that. And for those listeners, 
who are not um, uh, currently treating uh, many patients with such treatments, antisense oligonucleotides work like a little Velcro of RNA that Velcros itself basically to the area of your mutation. The mutation being a frequent mutation in that gene makes it worthwhile to develop an antisense oligonucleotide. They're, more, they're not much more than 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 between 15 and 25 nucleotides, and they uh, glue themselves against uh, pre-messenger RNA, thereby correcting splicing um, in such a way that the mature messenger RNA is then proper and it can be translated to the proper protein that is then properly functioning. Uh, that's something I still believe in. I would also say that um, I believe in novel developments that are in the pipeline where uh, subretinal injection of uh, viral vectors may actually be done with vectors that spread much more easily throughout the retina. Uh, I'm specifically thinking, for example, about X-linked retinoschisis, which is a transretinal disease in the sense that many of the cell types in the retina express this uh, gene. And so I'm I'm excited about the, for the, 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 the future there. I'm also excited uh, about the idea that um, currently is uh, developed amongst others by uh, the Napoli group, where they basically cut into half a large gene. Uh, in the end, what they do is put two halves, each in one type of virus, uh, and the adeno-associated viruses then co-infect a target cell with recombination happening again in the target cell. And so that's a technique to basically use a little uh, van to bring in uh, a big gene that normally uses a truck. Uh, and so I'm, I'm excited to see this. Uh, this has worked in the retina in a dish, and it's now up for uh, the final test in humans. So that, so I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah, I think, you know, all of those are, are great therapies. I, I agree. I think that X-linked retinitis pigmentosa is probably one of the exciting uh, targets. There are four different trials going on um, targeting that. And so I think that's promising that at least one of them will work. Yeah, of course, uh, uh, we didn't mention uh, gene-independent therapy. And uh -huh, uh, I yeah. hope at some point, uh, so uh, it's not started yet, but uh, studies such as the one conducted by uh, a sparing vision, triggering, um, you know, cone survival may also be uh, an interesting avenue uh, uh, bypassing the um, genetic uh, specificity. And uh, so hopefully, <laughs> yeah, certainly, point, uh, certainly, Isabel. And I think I think it's only yeah. fair you you talk about genetic gene therapies where yeah. we are mm -hmm. going to see techniques that that probably allow us to to help patients without necessarily um, mm -hmm. having to wait for gene specific therapy. So I fully agree. Mark, back mm -hmm. over to you. Yeah, and I think, you know, one final thing that I would mention um, has been the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing uh, trials for, for SEP290, which also demonstrated, you know, some early positive data. And I think that the fact that you have a disease where antisense oligonucleotides have shown some positive benefit and gene editing using a different method has shown benefit, uh, you know, bodes well that we actually can improve vision uh, in that patient uh, population. So it, it's very exciting. There are just so many new technologies coming 
down the pipeline. Uh, this is certainly not going to be the last time that we're all talking uh, about this. And so in conclusion, I'd just really like to thank uh, Bart and Isabel for a, a wonderful discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Mark, Isabel and Bart, thank you so much for that. It was really exciting. And you know what? Most of this podcast is our faculty nerding out on the science, which is great. But it's also lovely to hear you talk about patient stories and the effect these sort of therapies can have on people's quality of life. Um, right. So thanks again. Uh, that's it for this week's Talking You Retina. We're looking for your suggestions for things to cover in the podcast for 2023. If there's an area that you would like us to explore or have any comments or questions on the podcast, let us know. The email address is podcast at uretina.org. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time on Talking You Retina.